Well, again, take out your Bibles and let's turn to Genesis chapter 32. And we will be reading uh, the entirety of that chapter. Genesis chapter 32, starting in verse 1. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw, saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I might do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of the steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good. And make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for the multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present from his bro- for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, and 20 male goats, 200 ewes, and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me. And put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And those who are ahead of you. Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are present, sent by my, to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third, and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that that night in the camp. That The same night he arose and took his two wives and his two female servants and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. 
When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. The grass withers, the flower falls, the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. We pray, God, that as we heard the word, that we are hiding it in our hearts. We pray, Father, now for the preaching of your word. Be with this, your servant, that the word is rightly divided and applied, that we would understand it. Father, we pray for all of us also that we would have ears to hear, that we may hear and see Jesus today and give him glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. This is one of the benefits of the Christian life, being sanctified. This is... This is what happens in the life of the believer. The Spirit is at work in us. As we follow Jesus, the Lord graciously is transforming us, working in us, renewing us in all areas of our person. Our will, our righteousness, our thought patterns, our affections. This life-altering process, which occurs in the Christian, this process of sanctification, of growing in righteousness, is illustrated for us here in the life of the patriarch, Jacob. The book ended with God's visiting him at Bethel when he had left the land of Canaan, to the Lord's visiting him here when he returns was all part of that whole process that, that, that those years and years, 20 years, was a process of sanctification in the life of Jacob. Of course, this process continued even beyond when he returned to the land. It, it, it in fact, lasted for the rest of his earthly life. But we've seen Jacob experience tremendous spiritual growth. 
and a growth which had come for him through suffering. The Lord was at work in Jacob's heart, and so what we're looking at today really is an encapsulation of that work. It's something of a capstone or a a culmination. Jacob had wrestled with God and with men his entire life. And now he's being prepared to take up the mantle as the patriarch of God's people. The covenant successor to Isaac and to Abraham, the father of nations. The covenant promise of the blessed seed who would one day arrive was to come through this line of Jacob. And Jacob himself was to experience the blessings of God in his life as he was being continually renewed by God. And so as we enter into our study today, we really pick up the narrative from the previous chapter where Jacob has successfully freed himself from Laban, his father-in-law and his uncle, who had used and abused him. He had suffered greatly at the hands of Laban. This freeing from Laban then prepares the way for a seemingly even greater challenge which Jacob must face. And that is facing his brother Esau, who you might remember, it's been quite a while now since we looked at it, but Esau had vowed to kill him. This is why Jacob had to run and flee the land. Esau was going to kill him and now he must face him again. Jacob must face this brother after all these years. And this causes great fear and consternation for him. But before he faces Esau, his wronged brother, he must first face God. Who brings messengers to him and then appears to him and wrestles with him, injuring him greatly but granting him victory. This really is a lead up to seeing Esau again, but as these tensions are mounting in the narrative, that's not going to happen again, and we're not looking at that today until uh, next time when we look at chapter 33. And so we pick up in chapter 32, verse 1, and Jacob is heading back to the land of Canaan, and as he does so, he's met by these angels of God, these divine messengers. And so here, God is again providing yet another assurance of God's protection and provision for him. If the past 20 years had not been enough to help Jacob see God's presence and see God's protection, the Lord again provides this sign, which points to the fulfillment of God's promises that he would be with him, even as he faces Esau. God would be with him. The text says that the angels met Jacob, and not the other way around. Jacob didn't go to them, they came to him. And when Jacob saw them, verse 2, he immediately understood their significance. And he said, so he exclaims this, This is God's camp. This is the army of the Lord. And so just as Bethel was the gate of heaven, as the angels came and went up and down the stairs, so this place was the camp of God's army. And so Jacob called the place Mahanaim, which means two camps. 
Which may refer either to the fact that Jacob will later divide his camp into two, as we'll see in the text, or it may be a reference to the fact that he has come with his camp, and then this is God's camp. Either way, it's called two camps. So verse 3, Jacob sends messengers before him to his brother Esau. The word messengers here is actually the same word which is used in verse 1, which in our English translations is translated angels, messengers. So just as God had sent messengers to Jacob, so now Jacob sends messengers to his brother Esau. And so these messengers were sent to Seir. It seems that during the 20 years of Jacob's exile, Esau had dispossessed the Horites that were in that place, which suggests something of Esau's military might, a might which is displayed later on, or at least is told to Jacob later on that he has 400 men there. So Jacob's messengers bring a a respectful, really a a humble message from Jacob. He says, says, I have have sojourned with Laban. I've stayed with him until now. And then he tells him all the various animals he has and, and servants. I have donkeys and oxen, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent them to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. Jacob, you might remember, had treated Esau very, very badly. And so now he seeks to write past arrogance, past uh, bad behavior on Jacob's part. Just as Abraham had taken the first steps with Lot, being willing to give up the rights of his election, Jacob desired to make the relationship with Esau Right, trusting that God would keep his promises to him. And so Jacob summarizes 20 years of his life with six Hebrew words. He had spent that time sojourning with Laban. And now he hoped to have found favor with Esau. Notice too that Jacob uses... Uh, language of Esau being his Lord and refers to him himself as Esau's servant. So he really, he really takes a posture of humility towards his brother. He's seeking to make amends. He wants to make right his past wrongs. In other words, as far as Jacob is concerned, the rivalry is over. And so he throws himself upon Esau's grace. Ultimately, though, Jacob is throwing himself upon the Lord's grace. For he's trusting that regardless of how Esau responds, he was in the Lord's hands and the Lord would care for him and the Lord would keep his promises to him. Sometimes our humility toward other people is really a sign of our faith in the Lord, that we're trusting in the Lord. Because we must trust the Lord will care for us regardless of what other people may do to us. Verse 6. Jacob's messengers deliver Jacob's message. And then they return and they say to him, We came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. 
Now, the narrative does not record what went on between Esau and the servants. We don't know how that conversation went. Only the message was delivered and that Esau has decided to come to Jacob and meet with him. Now, at first, this may seem very positive. Oh, this is great. Esau's willing to meet with me. He's coming. But then it's added with 400 men. Well, that's terrifying. Remember that Jacob had already faced Laban and his superior force, and now his brother was coming with a superior force to him. And so what was the purpose of this? Why is he coming with 400 men? Did Esau intend to do him harm? Now the situation was as ambiguous to Jacob as it is to the reader. He doesn't know what's going to happen. What becomes clear, though, is that Jacob is terrified by this. However, with the benefit of time and reflection, if Esau had intended harm to Jacob, one would think that he would not have allowed his servants to return in peace. He would simply have killed them and then launched a surprise attack against Jacob. Also, where was Jacob again? He was at God's camp, the the camp of God's army. What is Jacob afraid of? Well, Jacob is like us, isn't he? It will, of course, soon become evident that Esau doesn't intend to bring any harm to Jacob, but rather wanted to escort him and his family into the land. Verse 7, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. The word of, you remember last time he had seen his brother, his brother was trying to kill him. Now he wants to meet with him with 400 men. That would be distressing. And so he's, he's, he's in a seemingly desperate situation, and he does seem to have reason to fear. And yet Jacob has survived Laban's force. He had experienced the camp of the angels, God's camp, the army of God. And God has been assuring him all along, throughout all of these years, over and over again, God has been assuring him, and he's, yet he's in fear And yet, we are just like Jacob sometimes. We too worry and fret when we should be trusting the Lord. One commentator put it this way, Jacob's, quote, guilty conscience leads him to imagine the worst. It's understandable. And so he makes preparations. He divides his people, his flocks, into two camps. Jacob, of course, can't retreat. He can't retreat because that would violate the agreement that he had with Laban. So he can't go back over. So the best he can do is try to minimize his losses. Jacob's actions indicate that he hoped to save at least a part of his family. His concern, you'll note, his concern is for his family first and foremost. And this is indicated by their being listed first before the listing of the flocks and the herds. So Jacob is terrified, but the news does not paralyze him with fear. He acts decisively to protect his family. The author, Moses, provides Jacob's thinking. Quote, he says, If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So you can see, he's trying to minimize his losses as best as he can. As long as Esau remains unaware that Jacob's family has been divided into these two camps, if if Esau does attack and comes against one camp, then the other one has time to escape. But, 
To its credit, Jacob does not only make this tactical move to protect his family, but then he also goes before the Lord in prayer. Now this is instructive for us. And this actually shows us how much Jacob truly has changed. He has grown into a man of deep faith. You see, the Christian does not simply do. We don't just make tactical moves. But we also pray. We seek the Lord. In fact, we don't just do one or the other. We don't make plans and act only, nor do we only just pray. We don't say, well, you know, there's a situation. Let's just, we'll just pray and, you know, hope for the best. We do both. We act and pray. We ought to act as wisely as we're able. And then we go before the Lord in prayer, seeking His sovereign hand over all matters. We act in wisdom and we trust in the Lord who cares not only for the ends, but also the means to that end. Because God cares about both. And so here we have Jacob's first recorded prayer. This is the first time we see Jacob praying at all. That's not to say he didn't pray before, but this is the first time it's recorded. And uh, another note to make, this is the longest prayer recorded in the book of Genesis. Again, this I think says something about Jacob's faith. Jacob has been transformed. He has gone from the prayerless, strong man who used his brawn and his might to accomplish what he wanted to being a man of vibrant faith and conviction, a man of deep prayer. Finally, he has grown into a right relationship with God, which will then allow his relationship with his brother to be healed as well. If you think about it, you know, your own relationships. Do you have a broken relationship with another person? Is there, is there someone that you, you, you have no relation to anymore? That, that relationship is broken. They're upset with you. You're upset with them. Whatever the case may be. Seek the Lord by word. By His word and prayer. Pray to the Lord. Read His word. Walk in repentance and faith. And then there is hope for reconciliation with the other. At least hope. Because you're seeking the Lord and His Word. And this is what we see in Jacob. We see this in Jacob. Jacob wants to heal. He desperately wants to heal. The relationship is broken with his brother. He's protecting his family, but he goes to the Lord in prayer. And we'll see he has more actions even after this. And so Jacob calls out to his God. He humbly acknowledges his unworthiness for God's steadfast love. And faithfulness because God has been so incredibly gracious to him. God has been so incredibly gracious to us. You and I, as sinners, have done nothing to merit God's favor, and yet God is pleased to grant us his favor in Jesus Christ by faith in him. Jacob says, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love. You know, whatever the smallest amount of, of love and grace that God has given to him, whatever the, the smallest amount is, I, don't, I haven't even earned that. I'm not worthy of the least of all of your deeds of steadfast love and faithfulness, which you have shown. 
The Lord has shown to Jacob chesed, that is, covenantal love, steadfast love. God has been so faithful to Jacob, loving him. This is the love from God. This is the love of a superior to an inferior, chesed. It is a reflection of the character of God who loves and looks kindly on the one who cannot help himself. Isn't that how God loves us too? When Jacob had first gone over, over the Jordan to sojourn with Laban, Jacob came with only one thing. He came with a staff in his hand. Now he comes with two camps. Jacob, as he reflects in prayer before the Lord, realizes the Lord has blessed me really greatly, hasn't he? He has given him so much. God has not only cared for him, he has provided for him. He has so much. And Jacob, in in humility, he sees, "I'm, I'm unworthy of all of this. And so he asks that God would deliver him from the hand of his brother Esau. He was afraid that he would attack him, attack his family. And so Jacob's request is for deliverance, for salvation, for protection, which ultimately will come, though, in an unexpected sort of way. Jacob then has, has confidence as he recalls the promises of God. Look at verse 12. But you said... He, look, he's, 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 he's repeating what God said. God, you said, I will surely do you good... And make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So Jacob reminds God, and by the way, as he's praying that, he's reminding himself. You said these things, Lord. You promised all of these things, Lord. Surely God will do good to me. Because God, you said so. So it must be. When you and I pray, we ought to pray God's word. For in it, we are reminded of God's short promises. God remembers His own promises. When we pray these in this way, we're reminding even ourselves of God's promises. And in that sense, too, prayer has a transforming effect on us. We are changed through prayer. The Lord has said that He will act, and you and I can rest assured in the promises of God. And so, that evening... Having split his camp, Jacob stays in that place where he was with what he had left. He determined then to act in another way, and that is to now send gifts to his brother with the hope that he may gain Esau's favor. Again, we see Jacob acting in faith, seeking to be reconciled. He has gone before the Lord in prayer. Now he wants, he's going to do everything he can to be reconciled to his brother prior to meeting with him. And so he wants to be generous. He wants to build goodwill. And so he takes this variety of animals and he hands them over to his servants and they go one by one. One gift after the other, spaced out. Oh, and Jacob's behind us. And then here comes more gifts. Oh yeah, and Jacob is behind us. And here comes another uh, uh, drove of gifts. Oh, and and your, your servant, Jacob, is coming to his Lord, Esau. He's coming. He's behind us. These are the things which belong to Jacob. 
And He's giving them to you. And so if you think about it, I mean, that would be a dramatic, that's giving gifts in a very dramatic fashion. Jacob hopes that these gifts would be seen as a peace offering and that Esau would accept him, would not seek to do him harm. This is maybe a sort of pragmatic diplomacy. These gifts are sent to as free gifts. These are compensation for having done wrong. These are not paying a tribute. Jacob calls them presents. These are blessings for Esau. Because Jacob, as he looks at his own life, he says, I have been so blessed. I'm going to be generous with my brother. Freely giving to him and blessing him. He was ready to bless Esau. He was even ready to be restored with him. And in doing so, he's trusting in God's provision and covenant promises to him. And the list of animals you know, is enormous. There's 550 animals in all. And, and this is just what he has left in his camp. You can imagine how much Jacob had then. Jacob is seeking forgiveness from his brother and his, dem- and his actions demonstrate how serious he was in this. And so as the presence uh, pass, uh, to Esau pass ahead of him, uh, Jacob stays in camp. And his two wives, uh, the female servants, all of his children, they cross uh, the ford of the stream uh, of the Jabbok, that is a tributary of the Jordan River. All of his earthly possessions... All that he loved in the world, his wives, his children, everything he has passes over the stream and are gone from him. And now Jacob is alone. This is like how he crossed before, alone. He's alone again and it's nighttime. Darkness has come. So verse 24, Jacob is left alone. This is like almost a reversal, a complete reversal of everything. All that was his has been removed from him, and now he's by himself again in camp. And remember, the scene is of nighttime, darkness, desolation. And the emphasis here is on the aloneness of Jacob. He is in an unprotected and vulnerable state. And yet, Jacob was not alone. For no one is ever alone, are they? Well, suddenly the narrative, though, introduces something new. It's like, oh, really, all of a sudden, it's, it's, it's seemingly random in the text, right? But all of a sudden, a man is introduced. A man who wrestles with Jacob until the breaking of day. That's not revealed at this point in the narrative who this man is. Thus, at this juncture, this is unknown to Jacob as well. He doesn't know who this is. All he knows is suddenly he's wrestling. Now we know, by continuing to read, that the man is God himself. And the Lord had had initiated a wrestling match with Jacob. Now we might remember again... Jacob was a strong and vigorous man. Remember when he went to meet Rachel and he lifted the stone off the mouth of that well when it took like three men to do it. He he just lifted himself. He's a strong man. He is a man of great power and physical strength. This is the way he's lived his life. 
This wrestling match between Jacob and the man lasted throughout the night. Both had obvious strength and endurance to be able to fight for this long. I mean, it gives you an an idea of something of how strong Jacob was. Jacob had been wrestling with God his entire life, and now he was doing it through the dark of night. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, verse 25, he touched his hip socket, thus putting Jacob's hip out of joint. Now now notice something. This was a mere touch. Which really indicates that this man could have easily beaten Jacob all along. I mean, he could have beat him. He could have beat him within, you know, a millisecond. It would have been all over, but he doesn't. He wrestles with him throughout the night, and then he touches his hip and he cripples Jacob. He cripples, he dislocates his hip just by the mere touch. This is what one commentator calls a severe mercy. Sometimes in our wrestlings with God, as it were, we may experience a severe mercy as well. In this severe mercy, Jacob's pivot of strength is shattered. Brawny Jacob has been greatly weakened. He had relied on his physical prowess to function in this life. But now, that is taken from him. His natural strength has been diminished. And he could do nothing now but prayerfully cling to his God. And for God's grace. This is exactly where Jacob needed to be. Isn't this often the way it is for us as Christians? Sometimes our strength is taken from us. Whatever that may be. Our particular talents, our physical prowess, you know, having money, whatever, whatever our strength, we think our strength is, what happens when that's removed? What are you and I when we're that weak? The Apostle Paul tells in the Lord's message to him in 2 Corinthians 12 when, he, when Paul pleaded with the Lord to remove the, thor- the thorn of flesh or the thorn in his flesh and he says this, My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. The Lord's power is demonstrated in our weakness and we can rest in contentment and joy because we're in God's hands When we're weak, we cling to Him. And He demonstrates His power in us, in our weakness. And so here, we see a new phase in Jacob's transformation. Strength in weakness. The strong man must now cling to his God, for the Lord has graciously, graciously weakened him. So that he might, in greater measure, walk by faith. Isn't that really marvelous? And it seems upside down for us, doesn't it? That we must be weak so that we're, we actually have strength in the Lord. This is what happens to Jacob. And so, verse 26, the man says, Let me go, for the day is broken. Though Jacob was physically broken, he would not give up, and he continues to cling to the man. 
Daybreak, though, was upon them, and no one can see God and live. And so the battle has now transitioned into one of words. Jacob would not give up. He would not let go until he had received a blessing. When the man had broke his hip with just a touch, Jacob realized suddenly that he was wrestling with no ordinary man. He was wrestling with one who was greater than himself. Now, he had already experienced the messengers of God. Perhaps this is one of those. Jacob, though, had already received a divine blessing, which had been bestowed on him by his father. Jacob was to be the next patriarch who would rule over his brother. So what is the nature of this blessing, or, or what it would be, is unstated. We don't know what kind of blessing Jacob is after. But what we get out of this text is that Jacob received that this man was his superior. This is one who is greater than himself. And who and he will in the end reveal who it is himself. Jacob will know and say. But the, the, the narrator maintains the ambiguity of the man's identity until later when Jacob reveals it. Which, by the way, indicates something of the hiddenness of God, doesn't it? The man had confronted Jacob in a personal way and yet maintained a veil of sorts. The man here is an appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ prior to his birth, which itself is a remarkable demonstration of God's grace and condescension. God had condescended himself to Jacob and had related to him in a very tangible way. Jacob had wrestled with God. And so the man asks for his name, and he says, Jacob. Now, by asking for his name, Jacob must now face his own past. Because, remember, Jacob's name means heel grabber. He had been that very thing. He had sought to hold on to what he wanted by his own sheer will and power. He had lived a dubious life, stealing, deceiving, tricking, but his life has been transformed, and he has been given a new name. He has been given a new identity. No longer is he to be called Jacob the Deceiver. Verse 28, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men, and have prevailed. The Hebrews literally, it shall no longer be said, you are Jacob. Again, this is an indication of the spiritual transformation which has occurred in his life. His status had changed, and he has been given a new name. In the previous chapter, we might recall that Esau had quipped of Jacob. Isn't he rightly named Jacob? Jacob the deceiver. No longer are you going to be known that way. Now you will be called Israel, which is a shortened construct of Sarita im Elohim. God fights. The patriarch Jacob had fought with God. He had striven with God and with men and had overcome. The name Israel emphasized that it was God who initiated the struggle. God had fought Jacob and 
and had also fought for Jacob. And by clinging to God, Israel had overcome in the face had overcome in the face of impossible odds. God had initiated the struggle, and Israel had striven with him and with men, and had come through it blessed, though not unscathed. Jacob, Israel, his whole life had been marked by struggles. He fought with his brother, he had fought with his father-in-law, he had fought with God, he had held on tight. This is what the word prevail means. He had held on, just as he had held on to the man in their struggle. Now, Jacob, perhaps true to his competitive nature, asks for the man's name also. Verse 29, and he receives a similar answer to that which Manoah receives in Judges chapter 13. Why is it that you ask my name? And in Judges it's added this, seeing that it is too wonderful. Why do you ask my name? His name is beyond comprehension. In some respects we may say that the asker had not yet fully comprehended who it is he's asking. Do you understand who you're asking, Jacob? In both cases here and in Judges as well, the inquirer though begins to realize the supernatural status of the one they were speaking to. As they receive this answer, it's like the light bulb goes on. Oh, <laughs> now I get it. This is, this is actually pretty serious. <laughs> Jacob now confesses who he's been wrestling with. Oh. The man was none other than God. Jacob has seen him face to face, though not literally, of course, veiled in darkness. It had been dark, it was a dark night. And yet now Jacob realizes and is amazed, for he has interacted with God. God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 33, in verse 30, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Jacob had seen a form of the Lord, though not the fullness of His glory. He didn't even get His name. He doesn't doesn't get everything revealed, just as Moses had seen a form of the Lord in Numbers 12. What Jacob now, now Israel, had experienced was both terrifying and intimate. He had experienced the Lord, and his life was spared. Well, the scene ends... Daybreak begins to come, and the sun rises. And this whole scene, in some sense, depicts something of Jacob's spiritual walk, doesn't it? It begins in darkness. He doesn't really know God. He fights with God. He fights with men his whole life. He is broken physically. He's broken in heart. And he clings to God for a blessing. And then he gets, he gets a new name as he walks in the shining light. Isn't that something of the Christian life? And the sun had risen on his hope and his transformation. But he will carry the scars of what, had, what he has been through. 
And we read that as he passed Penuel, this is a variant spelling of Peniel, it's the same place, the sun is risen and Jacob is limping because of his hip. No longer was he to walk in physical strength, but he was now walking in spiritual strength. This is the posture of the Christian believer, isn't it? Our text then ends with this statement, Therefore to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Now this particular dietary restriction is only mentioned here. It serves as a reminder that Jacob had become weak in his struggle with God, but it had been strengthened spiritually because Jacob has a new identity. Israel. This new identity, beloved, is true for the Christian too. For those who have faith in Jesus. When a person comes to saving faith, they go from darkness, the darkness of light, of night to the light of morning. It's a movement from death to life. No longer are you in Adam. You are a new person in Christ, a new creation. You have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the Son of God. Your status has gone from slavery to sin to son and heir of the covenant promises. And just as Jacob receives a new name, you have a new name too as a follower of Christ. You have been united to Christ And thus, you and I ought to act upon that conviction. We ought to see the power of the gospel and the power of the Spirit, which is transforming us and sanctifying us too. God was at work in Jacob's heart throughout his life, and he is at work in your heart also. Perhaps you wish it were more immediate. I understand that. But the reality is that the sanctification process is slow and lifelong. It is part of God's grace to us. And so whether you grew up in a Christian home, always knowing Jesus, or have become a believer as an adult, the process of growth, the process of sanctification, of dying to sin, of living in righteousness... This is a lifelong process which ends when you're in glory. Our union with Christ in His death and resurrection is ours the moment we trust and rest in Him. But since this is being made into a new creation in Christ, it takes us a long time to understand what has happened to us. I think this is what we've seen in Jacob. It took Jacob a long time to figure out what has happened to him. And although we follow Christ, if we are honest, we realize we have foolish hearts still. We are blinded by sin still. And so we fall to temptations. We fall short of God's glory. And yet God is so faithful to us. God is still seeking us, changing us. In short, we are still sinners, though we are saved by God's marvelous grace. But you and I are no longer ruled by sin. And so we must still fight it for the rest of our lives while clinging closely to our Savior, Jesus Christ. We must cling closely to our God. 
This, beloved, is the Christian life. Outside of Christ, we would be fighting against God and we would be at peace with sin. But now, we are at peace with God and we spend our lives fighting against sin. And you do this in part by knowing who you are in Christ. Because you've been given a new name and a new identity. This is, a, this is the lesson that Jacob needed to learn and need to be reminded of. And this is the lesson that you and I need to learn and be reminded of too. You've been made a new creature in Christ. You have been given a new identity in Him. Therefore, live in that identity. You might even say, to some respect, Jacob was a believer his whole life. He certainly didn't act like it in his younger years. He needed to learn, and perhaps he needed to learn the hard way. And boy, he sure did, didn't he? He needed to learn what that means. What does it mean to follow after God? Well, this is true for some of us, too, isn't it? You believe God... But you need to be reminded of exactly what that means. And so you're going to learn the hard way. And so God brings severe mercies into your life. Pray, beloved. Pray. Be in God's word. Remember God's promises in Christ. And cling closely to your Savior and to your God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for this great reminder, this instruction from the Old Testament, from the life of Jacob, what it means to be a follower of our Savior and God. Help us to be those who are clinging closely to you. And help us, O oh God, by your Spirit to put to death sin which remains in us. Thank you, God, for the work of your Holy Spirit in us, sanctifying us, growing us, delivering us. We are thankful even for the trials and the sufferings which we we experience that is building up our faith. We're thankful, God, for the severe mercies. May they be very useful in our hearts, in our lives, that we may give you glory in all things. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.